Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. You see it happen a lot in sports, right? Someone, you know, wins the, you know, an Olympic gold medal or they, you know, are at the top of their game. But what happens after that? You know, your life doesn't end at that moment. And when you've spent so much of your life aspiring to that, you've seen lots of stories. Sometimes it works out really well and sometimes it doesn't. And so I didn't want to be that person who was, you know, I, I achieved my full career goal before I was 30. Um, and so then I had to find a new one. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Maria Burns Ortiz grew up in a family of successful athletes. Her mom, Anna Maria DeMars, became the first American to win the World Judo Championships in 1984. Her sister is Ronda Rousey, a former mixed martial artist who became a professional wrestler, best known for her time in the UFC and WWE. Maria parlayed her own love of sports into a job at ESPN, writing about the intersection of social media and sports. She went on to co-author her sister's biography, which made her a New York Times best-selling author. That's when Maria started looking for the next challenge. Her mom, who had become a math teacher, suggested educational video games. Quite a big change, but to create games that resonate with kids, you need a story. Maria knows how to tell stories. So she and her mom started Seven Generation Games, a company on a mission to change the way math is learned with a focus on equity, creating programs that are culturally specific and available to rural and disadvantaged communities. Seven Generation Games recently received $1 million in grant funding from the U.S. Department of Agriculture for Growing Math, a new learning platform aimed at helping meet the needs of students and educators. Many aspects of Maria's life converged to bring her to this moment, when her company, which she now runs from Minneapolis, is having some real success and making a real impact. To understand how she got here, we go back to third grade, when Maria moved from Los Angeles to Minot, North Dakota. We moved um, from Los Angeles to uh, Minot, North Dakota, right? Um, after she got her PhD, a whole bunch of things went into that. And, when you were and, a kid. Um, yeah, when I was when I was young, and mm -hmm. so uh, she said, "Okay, we need to to move." We moved, and um, she was actually teaching at Minot State University. And they said, "We have this program. We want you to to run a, about something about Native American a research project over about Native American community." And she said, "Well, to be honest, I'm the worst person to do this because I am a Latina woman from Los Angeles. I don't know anything about anything about tribal communities." And they said. Well, at least you won't be prejudiced. <laughs> and so she, you know, ended up running that, you know, being the researcher for that project and then ended up working with a number of, because we were in, in North Dakota, a number of tribal communities, um, tribal colleges, teaching there, building those relationships. And so actually when we started out, it was um, her and uh, one of our early colleagues who's now tribal uh, historic preservation officer for the Spirit Lake tribe were doing 
uh, the data analysis of the National Indian Education Study, uh, which is a, a, a survey of in, the largest survey of Alaska uh, Native American Indian um, students in the country, and they found that you know the math gap was huge, and that it wasn't they weren't engaging kids, and there was progress wasn't being made. And he said to her, "I can't accept that the kids in my reservation know math or." or know their history, and we need to come up with a way to solve that. And so that's how we went down that road. So she had about 30 years working in tribal communities before we started. But okay. yeah, it was kind of a... And I also want to know for you, what was the... How long did you spend in North Dakota, and what was that like for you? What do you, re, what do you remember of those years? <laughs> you know, we were there for, let's see, four, wait, five years? Mm-hmm. No, six years? <laughs> it was from like, you know, from... from third grade to um to ninth grade we were there so um and then I was actually in Woodbury out here for a year of that but it was interesting I mean it was it was kind of a culture shock for sure in the beginning I would guess um, you know we moved from Los Angeles and my mom would call friends back in LA and be like you won't believe first she's like you can buy a house for the price of a car <laughs> and then she would say you know in the winter she called back as we and she said you will not believe it. In the winter, people leave their car running and they go into the supermarket and no one steals them. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was it was interesting. I mean, it was different, too, for us because, you know, we were we were also I mean, my mom's family's from Venezuela. And so we were it was very different. I think the demographic has shifted a little bit. Yeah. But um, it kind of gave us in California. We didn't really think anything of it, but kind of this different understanding, too, of of how different places in the country are very different Mm -hmm. um, for better or for worse. And then, so there was, you know, a lot of good things. There were a lot of things that, you know, I think communities have changed a little bit, but maybe not as much as as people like, but yeah, it was interesting. And I remember we moved back and um, we also made games in Spanish and partly because for community, our community background, but we were there and my mom was at the mall and she said, someone was speaking in Spanish and her friend Said, what are you doing? Most of us are looking at him because there's things speaking Spanish. Thing, so I thought maybe I knew them because if we were in North Dakota and she heard someone speaking Spanish. That was probably someone she knew. Whereas in Los Angeles, they think you're crazy. Right. Um, but right. it, was, it was very different. I mean, we moved from Los Angeles to actually she moved us to a farm 20 minutes outside of Minot, North Dakota. Um, wow. And it was yeah, it was kind of a, a crazy time. <laughs> but, I bet. Yeah, Probably better that that happened when you were in third grade than like in high school. You might have been very resentful. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It was just, but I think it does give you kind of an understanding because I think, I think it's this interesting way, you know, kind of have this full experience, like to live somewhere in a large city and have mm-hmm. all the understanding come from that. And then to live somewhere in a rural community and to work in rural communities. And we work a lot with, you know, underrepresented populations, rural communities, but to be able to see those differences in perspective, I think has been really important because I think. Often I find people in, in in some of those communities do not understand how people could live in, in large cities. And people in large cities don't understand how people could live in these rural areas with the differences in perspective and how they can think and all of these different things. I think it's kind of interesting to be able to see, and I mean, maybe not always agree with both sides, but mm-hmm. be able to see and get an understanding of people's perspectives. And I also think building out what we do, it's really important to understand what it's like to live in a rural area where you know, we when we were little, we lived out on, on the farm in Minot. You know, you could pick up the phone and we would, you know, dial 911 and nothing happened because it wasn't connected into the system because <laughs> we were that far rural, yeah. you know. And to have a gravel road where if it snowed, maybe we were snowed in for three days, right? Hmm. And so to have that perspective, because it is easy to think, well, 
it can't be like that or maybe it's not as different as people say and and it definitely it it is and I mean that was you know 30 years ago almost so things have changed but I go to those communities still and there's lots of places where you know that is the case they don't have wi-fi at home or you're down that gravel road and yeah, it'll be a couple of days if you're snowed in. Sure, sure. Who would have thought all those years ago when you were just a kid that you were really kind of laying the groundwork for what would become seven generation games? Exactly. It's been, you know, that's the other thing. You never know where where you're going to draw from, right? Mm-hmm. Where your experiences are going to come from and shape you. And, yeah. and sometimes the things you would have never considered that actually make some of the biggest differences. What, what did you aspire to do when, when you were a kid? Where, where, where would you have told me you'd be at this stage? You know, it always depends on the age, right? So at one point, I would have been a Lego engineer. And then I learned um, that that didn't just involve putting Legos together all day. So I, I shifted <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to be a writer for, for a really long time. And then that kind of evolved into, you know, I, I don't know, I've always been very much a little bit financially minded. So, you know, someone says, well, how are you going to be a writer? Who's going to pay you? And so then I thought, well, I'll go into journalism, which, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's the big bucks, right? Exactly, oh, big. boy. <laughs> <laughs> but at least that was one where you could apply, you know, yes. a specific job. Right. And so I went into to journalism and then I went into sports reporting because that seemed, you know, it was interesting and fun. And Were you um, an athlete? I was. So I ran, I ran track throughout college. I came from a family of athletes. I literally have two world champions in my immediate family growing up. What (laughs) what do you mean? Who are they? What do they do? Yeah. So my mom was the uh, first American to win a world judo championship. Oh my gosh. Um, And she did it. Yeah. When I was uh, two years old. So like literally having that in my household growing up. Amazing. And then my sister went on to um, be in the Olympics and win a bronze medal, and she was a uh, world uh, champion in the U- in the UFC, first woman uh, champion there, and then WWE. So you know, I <laughs> I had a lot of sports in my household, but it's funny because we weren't like a sit down and watch sports household. But that kind of idea of what it takes, I think, to be to be honest, to be really great and to be a incredible, not just athlete, but at anything, the amount mm-hmm. of time and effort and work it takes was something that was always present in our house. Okay. So so yeah. that explains why you would be interested in sports. Any particular sport that you wanted to write about? You know, I, well, I grew up in, in L.A., so the basketball was a big thing because the Lakers. Um, but, you know, that I also like, I, you know, kind of everything. I was, I didn't really want to specialize, specialize, because I like this idea of being able to tell stories more than being able to just, you know, to go to every game and, and cover a beat. And, and I also learned really early on, just what a grind that is in a lot of ways um just to be on the road all that well it's funny because I say to be on the road all the time and then up until this I was on the road (laughs) constantly (laughs) um but but, you know yeah sports was kind of my focus and and so I went into that and I got I worked at a newspaper after I graduated and then got hired at ES uh, to to write soccer columns for ESPN Mm -hmm. um and then ended up going from there into their social media columnist and, and was there for probably Eight years writing as as a writer for ESPN. Okay, not not on air. You didn't want to be on camera. All all no. print writing. Yeah, I really like writing. I really like. I my big thing, especially at my my last semester in college, I took um, and this kind of set me down the path to games. Even though I didn't realize at the time, I took a, a class and was I think the first one ever offered about you know digital journalism, I think was a, and the teacher said, you know, who here knows what a blog is? And it was 2003, <laughs> right? And, and I, you know, the class, we all kind of raised our hands, like, where you half raise your hand, like, maybe, but no one, 
you know, and, but it was an opportunity where it really got me into digital storytelling and the possibility, which it's funny now because I look back at the things we were doing and the technology and the, you know, the, and, and just the leaps and bounds from where we were oh, then. But it was Tell really, me about it. I, <laughs> I spent college actually laying typeface letters. I was from like, right. you know, the the, arc, the old, old times. Right, right. right. And, but it showed me, wow, this is really fun, right? It was a lot more fun. It was a lot more dynamic. And just that kind of set me down towards the digital path. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be on the digital media side. And then, um, you know, it's weird how things just send you in that path. And I, I mean, I'm still doing that in this way because people say, wow, that's really different. But, you know, we're doing digital multimedia storytelling within a game format. It, hmm. it is very different. You know, it, it, it was not it's not a linear path, but right. I think most founders, not maybe not most, but a lot. I always talk about my story is atypical, but I think it's becoming more and more typical because I don't think that there's this typical, typical founder route that there mm-hmm. maybe used to be before. People are coming from all over and, and different things. And and that was really what happened to me is I, I really, really wanted to be a report, you know, a writer. I wanted to write for, you know, sports. And when you're doing sports like ESPN or Sports Illustrated or the, like, you know, the, the elite, you know, that's mm-hmm. the tops. And so, you know, I was two years out of school and, and ESPN said, hey, we need someone to write soccer columns. And so, you know, I'd hit that at 23. And then by the time I was 30, I was, you know, the social media columnist, I was doing all these things. And I, I use this, I, I compare it a lot to sports, because I think one thing that happens, and I certainly say my case, but I think applies to a lot of people, is you're growing up, but they say, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? But mm-hmm. no one ever says, okay, and then what about after that? <laughs> right? Right, it's, right. You know, it's just, here's the thing. And so I hadn't really planned for what would happen after that. I just thought, okay, I want to get there, I want to get there. And then I got there and I didn't, and, and I use this, I think it, it ties into sports because I, you see it happen a lot in sports, right? Someone, you know, wins the, you know, an Olympic gold medal or they, you know, are at the top of their game. But what happens after that? You know, your mm-hmm. life doesn't end at that moment. And when you've spent so much of your life aspiring to that, you've seen lots of stories. Sometimes it works out really well and sometimes it doesn't. And so I didn't want to be that person who was, you know, I, I achieved my full career goal before I was 30. Um, and so then I had to find a new one, which was this very weird kind of scary thing because mm-hmm. I think you go through your whole life planning, I'm going to do this. Um, but then it's also kind of cool because you realize, wait, I can do more than that. Right. You know, I've done that. Now I can do something else. It's a very interesting problem to to be able to check the box of your career goals when you're 30 and then think, OK, now what? So so right. you started to get that itch to do something else. Right. Where did you go? <laughs> so, I, you know, I was saying my my mom uh she's the world judo champion but she also has a phd in educational psychology she Mm. taught math at every level from middle school through graduate coursework and she had really wanted to make a video game to teach math when she was getting her phd Hmm. but the technology did not exist so uh you know fast forward many years and children put through college later and she said i really think we should do this will you come in on it with me um was she was she teaching at the time what prompted it she went well she kind of left she, she kind of had all of us out of the house well we have one sister who's much younger so she had her last kid in college and she just thought now I can kind of maybe like I said reinvent her you know mm-hmm. do this other thing I've been interested in and so um she just said let's go and make video games uh, to teach math <laughs> and did you think oh sure I know how to do that I mean what you know I thought well the first thing is it's funny because if you said to me do you think you know if you'd said to me even two years before we started this, you'll be making video games to teach math. I would have said, 
I'm not the kid that liked math. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I did it. I wasn't bad at it, but I took the bare minimum amount of classes that I needed to get through it. And mm-hmm. then I moved on. But also I think then you get old and you start to see like why you need it and when you use it and why I wish I paid a little bit more attention when. Um, and I thought, what if I could engage people more around that? What if you can get kids more excited about it? Because it's not that math is a bad thing. Sometimes I think it's just taught poorly. And I don't, and some teachers are great. Some people have incredible math teachers, but sometimes it's just not taught in a way that clicks with kids. Right. And so that, what if I could do part of it? Something that, but no, when she said, let's make video games, I just thought that sounds like a fun challenge, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she said, you know, we need someone to be on the creative side to do the writing and the story. And a lot of our stories are historically based. So there's research and there's talking to people and interviews and all of those things that go into the initial, um, you know, there's a much different process from when you're starting a company to now when we're scaling it, right? So in the very beginning, you'd be focused on all the product things. And and the reality is I was thinking maybe I should go to business school because I, I wanted mm-hmm. to, to change what I was doing. And I thought, okay, the other thing is I wanted to be kind of the boss of myself, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And, yeah. and I thought, okay, let me go. And so I was really thinking about going and getting an MBA and I was even studying for, you know, um, the test. And, and she said to me, okay, you have two options. And, and my, my mom also has an MBA as a PhD. So um, she said, you have two options. You can go and you can go and get an MBA and you can do all of that. Or you can take the money that you would put into tuition, invest it in this company with me, mm. learn real world on the fly. That was kind of the pitch she made to me as well. When we get back, Maria skips business school to jump into business. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank providing a means to a dream. We left off with Maria at a crossroads. Go to business school or go directly into business. Here's what happened. Or you can take the money that you would put into tuition, invest it in this company with me, Mm. learn real world on the fly. That was kind of the pitch she made to me as well. Go mom, wow. Instead of, of, you know, case studies and do this, you could actually be doing this part. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, well, you're not out any more money than you would have been if you went and got an MBA. If it does work out, then you're up. So okay. that was a pretty good sell. Uh, um, and so I said, okay, let's try it out. And here we are, you know, uh, that was geez, probably eight years ago and we've been at it five years full time. So. so in the early days, and is your is your mom still involved? Yeah, yep. So she's, she's planning on, you know, reti- she keeps talking about retiring, but yeah, she's she's kind of now down to, working fewer days a week, but she's kind of very hands-on. And she used to teach math, so that was her love, and she really loves the math content part of it. So in the in the very early days when the two of you started talking about this and you start thinking, okay, this maybe this is my thing, did, did you quit ESPN right away, or were you doing both? And, and how did you begin to set this up? It feels very daunting. You're going to build video games. Do you know how to build video games? Right. So, yeah, so I was writing columns for ESPN at the time, and then there, uh, a different site, Fox News Latino, which was uh, a, a vertical there. And so I was doing that, and I started to think, okay, I'm going to do this on the side, right, because you kind of always have all these things going. Um, 
And then I, I got a book. My sister, who I mentioned was a, a world champion, got a book deal. Um, and they said, oh, and you're writing the book with her, um, which, you know, she's my sister. So sure. sure. Who better to tell <laughs> the story? Said, and there's an advance. So yeah. um, that sounded good. Um, but, you know, then we, we were working on that. And then we had an investor about a year and a half in. We had an opportunity. And they said, you know, if you're going to do it, we'll invest in you, will back you, but you have to quit everything else. And so... It how was did, good, though, because how did you find the investor? You know, we'd done a program. We'd done an accelerator type of program mm-hmm. where we'd gone through that. And you then, and your mom. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. And then um, we'd done an accelerator program and then came through that. And you do the pitches and you, you know, do all those things. And then I said, yeah, I'll give you money. But I want every I want you to quit everything else. And so. Tell us what that what the pitch was, the earliest pitch in those first meetings. Yeah. You know, our earliest pitch was, look, you know, we know that math is essential for all of the, you know, foundation of of these future STEM jobs that we're talking about. And the reality is that we need to do something to change that, right? And the vast majority of kids are failing. And if we really talk about building out not just the future, you know, we, and, and for, it depends on who you're talking to, right? Some investors are really in it for the social impact aspect and some investors you know, like social impact, but they really do want a return on that. And that's good too. But we said, you know, look, you have three quarters of kids in this country that are underperforming at math. That right there tells you that there's need and current solutions aren't working, right? If current solutions were working, math scores would be going up and they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have these games that we've created. We have multiple years of efficacy data that show that they actually work and that they work anywhere. So, and by anywhere, it's not just in these perfect ideal classroom settings, but they work in rural communities, they work offline, they work on low-end devices. And we really think this is the future and an opportunity to be part of not just creating an impact, but also, you know, I'm a big believer in you can do well financially and do good socially. And anybody that wants to be a part of that is welcome to um, join our, our company as an investor. And we, we had a lot of people say, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and then we had a number of investors that said, yes, I really share that mission. And and I think especially in ed tech, that's important because by now we've seen a lot of companies come and go and you really have to find that right fit. You have to get someone who understands it takes a long time to change, especially educational behaviors within the school settings mm-hmm. and to make that difference, uh, to be able to say, okay, I'm willing to, to wait it out with you guys and, and trust that you understand the process and what you're doing. Um, and yeah, I'm, 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 when I talk to investors, I'm very blunt, blunt. This is especially in the beginning. I would say, you know, don't give us any more money than you can afford to lose. Right. Because <laughs> I didn't want to, but I didn't want to be worried every day about my investors. Right. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I think sometimes that happens is you're so worried about meeting what your investors want mm-hmm. and, and not that I don't care about them, but that you can't focus on some of the other things that are really important in building out your business. And sure. so I think that having that very blunt conversation with them, though, made it easy for us to go forward and do what we really believed was the best thing and not be worried all the time in the back of our mind. If we lose this money, then, you know, our investors are going to, you know, go broke or whatever it is, right. you know. Did, did you helpful. did you ever consider setting this up as a nonprofit? Because it feels like the kind of venture that that could have been nonprofit versus for profit. Right. We we didn't. And the reason very much is because we truly believe that there's potential for social enterprise, right? That, you know, social impact is not a charity as far as, you know, Mm -hmm. you can do, like I say, you can do good, you know, you can do 
good and do well, right? You can make a positive societal impact, but also make, and I don't want to say make money off of that, but have that be a profitable enterprise. Because I think otherwise you're pushing it towards this is charity, not a return on investment. This is, you know, mm. not. And, and so for us, I think that's really important because helping people is important and helping kids. But I think if you just make it something where it's a nonprofit, it doesn't necessarily encourage a whole bunch of people to go in and try be innovating on these solutions in ways that that we think that they should be. I, you know, yeah. and, and so that that's sense. been really important for us. So what is the business model? How I mean, is it schools yeah. paying you for your software? So we have a couple of different things. So primarily, yeah. So we have a school model where schools pay for the software, annual license, just like, you know, so you pay for Microsoft Office or, you know, I mean, that's pretty standard in schools. They're already paying annual subscription models. Um, we also sell directly to parents. And that came very early on where we, you know, in the beginning, it takes a long time to get into schools. And so we talk about, you know, on social media, we're doing this. And people would say, well, what about parents? Can we get it too? And I said, yeah, sure. For you know, <laughs> I'll take any. You know, I'll take anyone who wants to buy our, mm-hmm. our games money. And so we sell directly to parents, and that's more. You know, you get an app for your kid's iPad or something like that, where schools get data and reporting and all of that. Um, and then we also have a way where we kind of, and I don't want to say it's sponsored, but kind of a co-branded project where we work with other folks who want to build, who who align with our visions. So, for example, we have a game um, making up Lakota, which is you know, teaching math and cultural history, which is what we do. And it's also bilingual in English and Lakota. And so we had an organization that really wanted to be part of that work with us and, and, and pay us to build out those games. And so I think, especially in ed tech, we haven't seen yet where very, well, we've seen very, very few examples of where peer subscription models work, you know, at, at scale. And so for us, we're building out that sales base, but also at the same time, we're finding other ways to bring that revenue in so that we can continue to create games and get them into kids hands. Sure. So in back to those early days, mm-hmm. you you get some initial interest and traction. Did you yeah. go out and find developers to to actually build? I mean, did you create the the games? I mean, give us a yeah. couple of examples. Yeah, so everything. So well, the first thing we did was we found another developer, which was actually my stepfather. Uh, who came in All early. in the family, huh? Exactly. We're a very non-traditional. People talk about like family businesses, they think like restaurants or things yeah. like that. And we we decided to start a family video game company. Um, <laughs> but he'd been working in the defense industry, building out simulation software for the military. So building out our 3D virtual worlds was pretty, you know, a fun challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually my two co-founders um, were both technical. So they were able to do the front and the back end. And then we did, we had to go find an artist um, but everything we've done has been in-house, every line of code, every everything has been um, in-house. And so we, we we started building that out, and then we went out and uh, we we tried to – well, we didn't even try to raise some money early on. We got some grants because, you know, a lot of people will say – and this goes back to what you were asking about, you know, nonprofit. Um, you know, they'll say, well, we'll say, here's what we're doing. We're building these games. We're closing the math gap. We're working in underserved markets where, you know, there's a huge need for the solution. Mm-hmm. And they would say – that's really great. That's really important. That's really valuable work. And then you'd say, do you want to give me money? And a lot of folks would say, oh, no, I mean, it's really great, important, valuable work, but I don't want to invest in <laughs> oh, that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we went and we got um, SBIR awards uh, for a couple of million dollars from the, the federal government for different agencies to build them out to meet their you know, needs that they serve. And so from there, once you have a couple million dollars, more people are interested in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um 
but yeah, so we were able to build out the games that partly also helped us all quit our jobs and bring on more staff and more folks. And we are 12 people right now, um, 13, 14 coming on soon. All around the country or where is everybody based? Yeah. So, well, when we moved out here, um, the plan was to largely expand in Minnesota. And most of our, our three of our newest hires are, are in, in the, the state and two others are in the Twin Cities. But especially with, with COVID, it's kind of thrown that into a loop. You know, we had an office um, in L.A. I was going to I was basically going to start looking for our office here in March of last year. And then I thought, oh, well, we'll hold off and wait. <laughs> and now we've kind of gone to this very much remote structure Um but most of our folks are either here or California, and then we have uh, a couple other people around the country because, you know, really the last year shown us remote work is probably in a lot of ways the future. We do right. think there's a value in being together, you know, sometimes face-to-face, or at least we try and meet, video meet. And, um, but, you know, we're seeing a shift like everyone else. The, the office itself, the, the building isn't right. as important as you might have thought right. it would be. Um, your decision to to relocate to Minneapolis, I mean, it, it wasn't just about getting a bigger house, right? I mean, <laughs> what what was the thinking business-wise about why you wanted to leave L.A.? Yeah, 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 no, and I always joke about that, you know, but it was, it was you know, we looked about, so, you know, cost of living was one thing, but it's not just cost of living. It's about cost, you know, cost of business, right? We thought we could hire better people, and I don't want to say we would pay them less, but, you know, for the rates that we were paying in L.A., we could hire probably more talented folks here in the Twin Cities, right, mm-hmm. or in Minnesota. Um, additionally, a lot of the schools that we were working with, right, our customers are primarily between Wisconsin and Montana, so this North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, um, it was just we had a lot of business here. But also, I really liked uh, and and. LA and California, or sorry, and, and the Bay Area had been in both of those. And it's just a different kind of uh, startup ecosystem, right? And the mm-hmm. Twin Cities, like in in other, and I, and I don't want to badmouth other places, but you know, for example, we were in, in, in um, Northern California for a year. My husband was doing a fellowship. And I remember there was, was it WhatsApp or something? It sold, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, um, somebody told me, you know, oh yeah, they had, you know, somebody only got a hundred, somebody worth, you know, only got a hundred million dollars or something mm, like that. And I just thought, poor things. Oh, you know, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and things like that. And I just thought that, that's not a fit for me. That's not the kind of company that we're mm-hmm. building out. And we, you said we want to make money to, to live, but it wasn't one of those things. And there's so much of a competitive aspect. And when I was moving here, actually, I'd met a couple of different folks who worked in ed tech and were based here. And I sent an email like, you know, hey, I'm thinking of moving to the Twin Cities or, you know, and I was out here looking for a house. They said, oh, well, let us meet with you and start connecting me with people. And I just hmm. think there's a little bit more of a collaborative ecosystem here yeah, yeah. Um, in a good way. And not, and like I said, there were some great folks in, in California as well, but I just think it's more of a more realistic in some ways. If hmm. you sold a company for a hundred million dollars or ten million dollars, it wouldn't be a failure because it wasn't a billion dollars, right? right? You'd be like, "Wow, oh, that's really great." Exactly. And that's what what I really liked about that. And you mentioned that that most of your business is between Minnesota and Montana. Why is that? Is there greater yeah. need in that part of that swath of the country? <laughs> Well, you know, we started focusing on we're the opposite, right? A lot of times we'll say, find this huge solution and try and find a way that you can solve it. And for us, we started looking at how could we close the math gap in rural tribal communities out, you know, in the upper Midwest. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said, well, that that's like a tiny, tiny market. But we knew if you could solve that problem, it wasn't unique to that area, right? It wasn't only, you know, indigenous kids are having a problem with math. It was 
75% of kids are. So we can start with one kind of segment of that and find something that works. We believe that it could scale mm-hmm. across uh, across that. And so we, we focus not only on the math component, although that's really where we work on as far as improving math outcomes, but one of the other things that was really important to us was, was kind of creating good storylines. And so we talk about what do good video games have? How do they pull you in? And a lot of it's storyline. We thought, okay, if you're working to engage indigenous youth, why don't we reflect them in that, in the games, right? Mm. And so the storylines are based with, and we built them out with tribes. They're voiced as much as possible by tribal members. All the content is vetted by, by elders or tribal historic preservation officers, and they're tested and piloted in tribal schools. So the focus is kind of the game content. And it was interesting. Initially, we, we thought we'd have to change it for every tribe and become kind of the same game and we'd just reface it. And then we had a school saying like, no, just we like the Dakota game. Just build an Ojibwe game, yes. <laughs> you know, have the next one be that. And mm-hmm. so culturally, it, it was a fit on that. And we when we so that's kind of why I think we've really kind of had that that bit here. But although we had schools in California saying, yeah, well, we have no kids who are Dakota or Lakota or Ojibwe in our school, but it's educational. It's not space aliens or it's not that. So as we've kind of we've scaled, we've seen that. But also I think partly too is because we were focusing on these markets where we meet this need, but also the word of mouth, right? You know, nobody wants to be the last one to adopt. And if this school says, and we ran into this early, we, we did a pilot and we wanted, and so we had data showed kids who played our games improved three times the control group. So we're mm-hmm. really excited, but, um, and my mom, her, her PhD is in educational psychology, but her specialization is statistics and psychometrics. And so she said there could be lots of reasons why the data might be flawed, right? That's just what you think as a statistician. So let's do it again. And we went back to do it the second year. And the superintendent said, I'm not letting you do the study here. And we thought, what? But we have the data and it shows all of these things. Yeah, yeah. And he said, Exactly. And I am a superintendent in a small rural district. And if this school finds out that the other school has these games that are showing math improvement, the parents at the school that's your control group, they're not going to be happy. And I will not be in this very, you know, disappointed position for long mm-hmm. because, you know, some people from outside want to do research data. Wow. Said, well, that's a really good point where he said, so we'll all be in your, your experimental group, but you can't have the control. And so we said, okay, that's fine. We went down to the next community down the road, you know, and we'd been working in this area for a while and we said, and they said, oh yeah, well, we'll be in your study, but we won't be your control group because we talked to them. <sighs> and so we ended up with four schools. Um, none of them would be in our control group. We did, you know, kind of a, a compared to the previous year's data. But I think that was the moment for us where we started to realize too, that power of if something works, or I would say probably on the flip side doesn't work, those communities, you know, these schools, especially small schools that don't have a lot of people that are developing with them in mind, they're going to talk about it. And mm-hmm. so that really has helped us as we started to grow to be able to to kind of expand our reach within this this market. So we started out talking about just access and, you know, and <laughs> haves and have nots in education, which have been so pronounced this year. How do you I mean, beyond making the games appealing to different populations, how do you make sure that your programming is accessible? Does it require Wi-Fi? So, you know, elements of it. But no, we have an offline version and that's been really important from day one. So you need to obviously have the Internet to be able to download it say, mm-hmm. to a phone. Um, actually early on, we had even flash drives because some of the schools we were in, even if you have internet, even if it's connected, it would take two days to download Hmm. something that size. So 
We, but right now everything, there's an offline version for almost all of our games. Um, we work really hard to make sure that things run on the absolute lowest end devices. I always, when we started, I went to, to Best Buy and said, give me the worst computer that you sell. <laughs> and they said, oh, the cheapest? And I was like, no, the worst. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the two guys in the, the computer department were like, oh, that one. No one even hesitated, <laughs> right? And yeah. so, you know, I took that because I know if it, we knew if it ran on something really low end, really kind of clunky, it was going to run on anything. And so often you run into oh, works on my machine, right? Which, you know, what works in my house, you know, wired into a high speed, mm -hmm. you know, line is not necessarily the same thing that's going to work in a rural school or a rural community. Um, you know, what works on an iPhone may not work on an Android device, right? And so sure. a lot of these things are the things that we went in and we built out. And also sometimes, you know, from a software perspective, we have these conversations all the time because developers want to do the coolest, newest, funnest Of course, things. of course, the most advanced Exactly. But that might not run on a Chromebook, you know, depending on, on the Wi-Fi at the school yeah. that you're at, or especially now with kids at home. And so for us, it's been this combination too of how can we, and I was talking to someone and saying, you know, making something that seems high tech run on something low tech is really, really, really hard, you hmm. know? And that was what we try and do is sometimes, you know, maybe it's not going to be the coolest, newest 3D virtual world, but they can play it on their device, right? right? And so that's, that's been a lot of what yeah. has gone into our thinking too. What's your most popular game? So we have a game, at Making Camp. It's a series and our most popular one is Making Camp Premium. And so it, it's, you know, a fun game where I always think too, we kind of take games of, we look at what games kids really like. And so my kids were always playing these games. And I think a lot of kids are where they're building out these little virtual worlds, right? And they have to buy mm -hmm. things. My kids are saying, can I have some money? And I'm like, you want money to buy pretend money to buy pretend things that <laughs> right, live in your virtual world. Right. <laughs> and it's quite so, the scam, isn't it? Exactly. And so we built it out that we thought, what if we could leverage that? Because we always think, you know, how can we leverage that kind of desire to to do something, get something, earn something? And so in our games, they go through and they do math activities and challenges, which are still kind of like a fun game environment. And then when they solve them and they get them right, they get you know, points and then go cash those points in. And boy, kids will do so many math problems just to get a virtual dog, right? Um, that, <laughs> they that, want yeah, the payoff. Yeah. Yeah. And then that one we've expanded. So it was initially one game and now we have a number of games around that series that are also focused on different cultures. And then we have them in different languages. So we have them in Lakota and Spanish and a Dakota one coming out, an Ojibwe one coming out. Because we've really kind of built it out, not just culturally, but now we we have bilingual aspects to those games in ways that, you know, we're, we're creating well-rounded experiences. So talk about the pandemic. COVID-19 hits suddenly. Every schools are closed. Kids are home. What happened to your business? Yeah, you know, it was one of those those things, that, you know, things that, you know, the first quarter of last year, everything was going really well. And we we're like, this is it. This is the year, you know, and mm -hmm. I mean, we're realistic. But, you know, we thought, OK, this is great. Everything's going really well. And then everything just shut down. And, you know, for the first couple of weeks, I always have, there was like that first day when the kids were home and we thought, okay, let's well, be, you know, a week or two, two or three weeks, right? Yeah, and this I is think fun, like a about, long snow day, right? <laughs> exactly. And then I think about 15 minutes in or, you know, I joke, but really quickly, we started to realize also having a statistician on our team helped with that that the numbers were not heading in a direction that looked like anyone was going back. Mm -hmm. um, and we thought, okay, what do we need to do to pivot as quickly as possible? Not from a business standpoint in that moment, but to make sure that we can 
help the schools that we're currently working with, mm-hmm. right? And so actually right in the very the last quarter, we opened up everything. We just took down um, the payment wall for everything. We Any school that wanted it could come on and get it for free. Um, and we just spent basically the next three months helping teachers either that have currently been using it or new schools coming on that were looking for solutions because so much of what you use in the classroom has been developed to just use in the classroom, right? Right, right. Even schools in areas where connectivity is not that great in homes have decent internet, right? And mm-hmm. so all of these things, they'd had these software that they thought, well, we can use that, but then the kids couldn't actually access it at home. We had schools where, you know, the kids, but 30% of the kids, 40% of the kids didn't have internet at home at all. Hmm. And so how can we create solutions, you know, things that parents can download on their phones or helping just push that out was our real focus there. And then going back and making everything offline. So did you, so you had to really start redeveloping or kind of repackaging some of your programs on the fly to make it work for this time while schools were shut down? Yeah, exactly. I think we were maybe 40% of what we had worked offline at that time. And Mm -hmm. then Within the next three months, eighty-five percent of what we had worked offline. But in a and in a funny way, I mean that probably better positions you going forward. I mean, this wasn't just a, a short-term fix, right? And I think that was the one thing is we we kind of already we always talk a lot about there's like problems that we know how to fix, which are easy. They might take a little time. There's problems that we have zero idea how to even approach, and that mm-hmm. takes a lot longer to figure out. And so for us, when we hit this kind of covid period right uh we knew how to make those solutions work and we could do it really quickly and so i think that was an asset to us to be able to take that and make it accessible and i think especially for teachers you know nobody you know nobody was prepared for this you know nobody saw this coming in the way that it happened and i think for teachers especially a lot of them were you know trying to figure out i mean i always say teachers right now are living candidates for sainthood because Mm -hmm. this idea of the amount of work that they had to do to take everything offline and especially a lot of the communities we're in, you know, they're economically disadvantaged, right? The biggest concerns for some of the schools we're working with is the nutrition programs. Like how are we going to make sure that the kids get their meals and how are we going to be able to make sure they do all these things? And so for us to be able to, you know, take a little bit off of a teacher's plate by saying, okay, you know, focus on all of those things. and, And here, you know, you need some math lessons or solutions. Here we are. That was really where we felt we could contribute. Because I think at a t- at that time, everyone almost in a way felt also very hopeless or helpless, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, how, how do we even do this and overwhelmed? And so for us to be able to, you know, we, we talk a lot about, we can't fix everything. We, we know that we can't solve all of the problems in education, but be able to make a small impact, that can be a big thing. Mm-hmm. So. so what, so where do you go from here? Knowing everything you know now, everything you've <laughs> learned in a pandemic, running a company remotely, you know, pivoting to help schools through a, a, a most challenging time. Right. What does 2021 look like for you? Yeah, so we're rolling out the, the Growing Math Project, which is the one I was, I was talking about kind of earlier, where we're across six states and really we've been focusing on the games, but we've also found what do teachers need and building out lesson libraries, right? So we've gone from, we have these games, but you know, how do you then integrate them into your classroom? How do we leverage these things? So it's not just, here's this game, play this during this time, but ways that can be incorporated across it. So we've really been building out kind of the supplemental parts because we have that core of here's the games and those are really good and effective and all that. But then also teacher implementation and training. That's a big thing we got from teachers, uh, especially last month is, you know, here's the stuff. How do I use it? Now, I think before schools were getting a lot of software and 
Sometimes the teacher uses it, sometimes they didn't, but mm. just understanding the importance of training folks on it because so much educational software doesn't get used and no one learns from software that they don't use. Right. So understanding the other parts that go into it is, you know, the implementation part has been a big thing for us and kind of just building out what we have. And, and, and you know, the more schools that we bring on, I mean, we've, we've had a, a big jump in users in the last year. I mean, at one point we went up 50% in three months, right? Hmm. And so understanding those needs that come with that customer support, being able to, if someone runs into a problem, being able to either have it where they can easily find the answer or getting back to them quickly or, you know, just the things that you learn when you have a bunch of new people coming online and especially in games where, okay, you think you've tested every possible path and every possible angle and someone goes down this weird, you know, combination of, of moves or whatever and hits a bug. And so then being able to go back and make all of those changes because the other thing school, you know, games, there's a lot of potential for error mm -hmm. in bugs and, and the software design and schools, there's no potential for error because if it doesn't work, they're not going to use it again. And so right. just making sure that we're, we're, you know, in the position that things are working. You said earlier that, you know, schools are going to have to have, you know, hybrid remote options going forward, just like businesses are thinking about, you know, a new way of working, not going back to the way it was, just creating a new model. What do you think that looks like? And with all of these, you know, challenges and the and the districts that you talk to that don't have tons of extra money to invest in, you know, iPads and things like that, what do they need right now? You know, I, I think the big thing is they, they have realized, you know, they need software that runs on what they have, right? And the reality is, they, you know, there's a lot of realities, but, you know, this idea of a lot of schools have the software that they have. And so being able to have something that runs across that is is one of the biggest needs. I think, you know, teacher, and like I, said, I don't want to say teachers professional development, but understanding of like, what are teacher needs and talking to teachers. And I think there's been a, a disconnect at, between, you know, what, software companies and developers think teachers need and what teachers actually need hmm. uh, and creating those solutions. And especially previously, a lot of solutions have been around, you know, classroom management systems or attendance tracking or some of these things. And curriculum has always been a little bit of a second tier, I would argue, in ed tech. And we're starting to find that there's a real need for digital curriculum because that's a way that, you know, if kids have to be remote, if they have to be online, that you can see what they're doing, that you can, inter you know, interact with them versus, you know, packets or, or mm -hmm. but, you know, again, no one can learn from software that they can't use. So it has to be accessible. And I think that people have realized that the digital divide is a lot greater than they had thought. You know, they thought, oh, we've made these huge strides toward it. We're in the 21st century now. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what works in my house, you know, isn't necessarily going to work, you know, on the Standing Rock Reservation or Pine Ridge or, you know, even just rural rural communities in general. And I think that's a really important thing or, or urban households where maybe the only access to internet they have is the Wi-Fi on a parent's Android smartphone, right? Yeah. And so figuring out how that can, how we can create stuff that works not just in these optimal conditions, but in the real world. Yeah. Um, Maria, you seem very animated and excited talking about all of this. You've clearly answered the question for yourself of what's next after sports journalism. At this point, how do you feel? Do you think about, I mean, is there a next next? Is is this your calling? How do you feel? You know, I think, I think you kind of realize you've 
hit the point when you've gotten there, right? Like I didn't, I wouldn't have thought, you know, oh, I'm going to get to this point in journalism and then I'll be done and then there'll be the next thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we still have a ways to go. I mean, we we aren't where we would like to be yet. We talk about, you know, wanting to be as ubiquitous in classrooms as textbooks, right? Or I talk about, you know, organ you know, no one's really yet emerged as the video game, educational video game leader within schools. You mm -hmm. know, I, I always think, you know, you talk to people and say, well, you know, who remembers Oregon Trail? And, and mm, you know, so yeah. many, a whole generation. Yeah, of yeah. Do, you know, and we really think that there's huge potential and we haven't gotten there yet. I Do I think this is what I'll be doing until I retire? You know, I don't know. It's hard to say because I don't feel like we've accomplished it, you know, everything that we want to do. Um, but I don't know. I think you kind of realize at a certain point, okay, I've, I've done everything I want to do. I want to move on to the next thing. And I'm excited because I haven't done that yet here, mm -hmm. but I, I would hope that we do get to that point, not just because yay for me, but really because it means that the impact and the work that we've been trying to do will have made huge strides in accomplishing that. And yeah. that's why we do what we do. And so I'm excited about that. Absolutely. It's amazing work that you're doing. Do you feel like you in all of this have sort of discovered your inner entrepreneur? Was it always there just waiting to get out? I mean, does that energize you or is it really is it is it about the kids and education? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. I think you have to really believe in what you're doing, right? You have to have a goal and a mission, but you also have to really like it. That's why doing some, I mean, being an entrepreneur is not for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of no's, you know, but I was a journalist. So you'd have to make pitches and, and call people and have people tell you, no, they don't want to talk to you and do all those things. And, and so that's another one of those weird ways that you don't think that you're, you know, how do these two things connect? But you know, as a reporter, you have to pick up and call and sometimes talk to people right. that have zero interest in talking to you. You or... get used to being hung up on. I know. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think those kind of things prepared me for this. Uh, you know, I like it. I really do. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of, strangely, the things that, that as you grow that you think are going to be the challenges you never really thought about before. Like, you know, I'm responsible for making sure everyone gets – I remember the very first time when we, you know, hired – a number of people and thinking like payroll. Now I really have to make sure that we have enough money to mm -hmm. make sure that this is coming in and all of those stressful things that suddenly, yeah. you know, when you have a full-time staff, they're relying on you to bring in the money to keep them employed. And, and so there's a level of pressure that isn't ultimately for everyone probably, but I, I like being able to, to do that and being able to build my own team of like incredible people that I get to work with because I wanted to, not because somebody else hired them and I have to work with them. Right. Um, and so I think there's that combination of, of, you know, really loving what we do and believing in that mission, which is why we do it. But then also, you know, yeah, liking the challenge of being an entrepreneur. So I guess your mom, your mom was right about everything. <laughs> I know. I know. And she, <laughs> she does not let me forget it. <laughs> That's great. Well, congratulations on the success you've had so far. It is obviously making a huge difference for a lot of students and I'm sure many more to come. Thank you, Maria. Thanks so much. Well, I just love what Maria is doing, her whole path to entrepreneurship and her whole outlook with Seven Generation Games. It, it's that whole social enterprise focus and perfectly encapsulates this idea that it's okay to do well while you're doing good in the world. But what does that mean for higher ed on a broader level? Well, for that, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Kevin Henderson is a professor in the Department of Management. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. 
Uh, thank you so much for having me, Allison. Uh, it was great to learn more about uh, all the great things that Maria is doing. Well, I'm curious from your perspective in business, teaching entrepreneurship, looking at higher ed, uh, being in it and, and teaching about it. What did you think about Seven Generation and how does it relate to, to trends and ventures that you're seeing in the higher ed space? Well, I actually think it hits on a lot of the things that um, are growing trends in the area of higher education. I think a couple of things that kind of came to mind um, that are becoming much more uh, in the loop in terms of what faculty are trying to focus on in a classroom, uh, things like universal design for learning, uh, where you're trying to think about ways to give uh, everyone in the class an equal opportunity to succeed. Mm -hmm. I also see a connection to kind of inclusive classroom practices, figuring out ways to uh, ensure that your students feel included um, in terms of uh, the conversation and, and the and the pedagogy that's going on. Um, and I also think it relates to the idea of cultural relevant or responsive pedagogy, where uh, students see their culture, right, reflected in uh, the classroom and the, and the kinds of, you know, articles and, and conversations that you're having there as well. And that recognition, seeing yourself, whether it's characters in a game or a book or whatever, I mean, do you really see that that improves the the learning? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the uh, units that we have at University of St. Thomas is the Doherty Family College. Um, and the faculty there talk at length about cultural relevant pedagogy and how huge it is. Um, that student group has a very high percentage of uh, students of color. Um, and I definitely think it's important for students, right, to see themselves reflected um, in there. If, you, if they don't ever see, uh, you know, themselves or their experiences, you know, reflected in, in the conversations going on, I definitely think there could be, a, you know, you get the disengagement, uh, sure. right, where you're like, I don't see how it connects. I don't see how it relates or you're missing big picture of my lived experience. And therefore, uh, I'm going to check out, you know, and disengage. Right. We also talked with Maria about um, her company's response to the pandemic and, and filling the need and helping their clients and the schools they work with. I'm curious what you think um, about how the pandemic is changing our focus on what's needed in terms of ed tech, um, or is it accelerating the needs? What are you seeing? Well, I thought it was really neat, uh, some of the things that uh, they did um, with respect to handling the pandemic, you know, uh, basically eliminating uh, the payment page, right, so that they were able to get it in the hands of students that desperately needed, um, you know, the the training and the, the games um, and such that she created. And so in terms of higher education, I, I think one of the big things that we've noticed from uh, the pandemic um, is that, as I mentioned earlier, the universal design for learning, where, uh, you know, it's really important, right, when you shift from an in-person class to online, that everyone has kind of equal access uh, to being able to learn in that environment, that uh, their technology works, that they're able to uh, easily get uh, you know, on Zoom or whatever is being used there, um, and that you know it's easy for them to engage um, and and attend class rather than rather than more difficult. So, you know, when Maria talked about you know providing like this offline version uh, that people could download, um, so that you know if they didn't have internet connection, they'd be able to to do it. You know, putting it on flash drives, uh, so that you know students would would have access to it, and and then you know, choosing the worst computer, right, that uh, Best Buy sold, you know, to try to make sure that this the software worked on it, I think is a very, very important piece to, uh, you know, learning, particularly as we shifted uh, most of the courses online, is, is recognizing that we got to keep the tech and the software as simple as possible 
so that, you know, everyone's able to use it and engage with it. Good tip, I think, for other entrepreneurs, because as we discussed with Maria, it's like you're always thinking about what's the latest, greatest, fastest, coolest, and maybe that's not the best approach to take with designing some new products. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'd hate to say that the field of education hasn't changed a ton. I think we have, but there's there's certain tried and true things that we know work that don't necessarily require the, the fancy gadgets, yeah. um, you know, the most up-to-date things. Absolutely. Good to think about. Kevin, are you excited to get back into the classroom? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually teaching an in-person class uh, this semester. I was completely online in the fall and uh, desperately missed the in-person interaction. And so I, I asked my department chair, please let me have an in-person class. And so I, I do have one. Um, it's only I'm actually in a big auditorium, which is a little different for me. I'm used to a smaller classroom. So everyone's kind of spaced out, you know, to maintain the social distancing. Yeah. And of course, everyone's wearing a mask. So there's no chance I'll recognize these students outside of outside of class. It's, you know, mask wearing is not a thing anymore. Um, but it's Glad been very, very nice to be back in the classroom and talk to students. I'm sure it is. Well, thank you for the perspective. We really appreciate your time. And uh, thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Thank you very much for having me, Allison. It's been a pleasure. You bet. If you want to know more about By All Means, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. If you're listening on Apple, take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. To make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means.